0: Hello, this is uh, Professor Tofano, and I will be talking about Chapter 16. And uh, its title is Understanding Principles of Persuasive Speaking. And this is uh, page 297 in the sixth edition of our book. So we'll start off with um, listing the learning objectives then uh, the outline of the text, and then I will uh, talk about different um, components or ideas uh, within the the chapters. So as a reminder, I'm not covering uh, every bit of information in any of the chapters, and I'm certainly not going to read um, the entire chapter. So these uh, voice recordings will be useful um, either to listen, listen to them prior to reading the text or read the text and then listen to them to reinforce the ideas, uh, either one. But I, I do expect that every one of you will read every chapter in the text regardless if it is required uh, in the syllabus or if we will be tested on it. It's just useful information, good information that is necessary to become a more effective public speaker. So, chapter 16. The learning objectives describe the goals of persuasive messages. Secondly, explain classic and contemporary theories of how persuasion works. Third, describe four ways to motivate listeners to respond to persuasive messages. And fourth, prepare and present an audience-centered speech. The outline, uh, there's uh, four sections. The Goals of Persuasion, How Persuasion Works, How to mo- Motivate Listeners, and then lastly, How to Develop an Audience-Centered Speech. So that is a good start to this chapter. So the Goals of Persuasion. Persuasion is defined in this textbook as the process of changing changing, or reinforcing attitudes, beliefs, values, or behavior. So, in a persuasive speech, the speaker explicitly asks the audience to make a choice rather than just informing them. So, as you reflect upon your previous speech, most of you—and not all of you, but most of uh, you—were able to provide information that uh, improved our understanding of some topic that you presented to us. So that was important. So you enhanced our understanding of a topic, which was good. A few of you uh, crossed a uh, line that um, ultimately became uh, either slightly persuasive or completely persuasive speech. So, the difficulty with informative speaking, is, especially if you're passionate, is to not cross that line where you're not only informing but you're also persuading. So, um, the idea of an informative speech is to stay as neutral or down the middle uh, and not, take, uh, not present your opinion uh, to your audience and just provide them information that enhances their understanding. And then internally in their mind, they can decide uh, what side to fall on, but we don't uh, tell them and we don't direct them. But however, for persuasive speaking, you will take a position... You will tell them here's a problem, potentially here's the cause, and for sure here's a solution. And now that they've heard the problem, cause, solution, now they will agree and they will now support you and, and help you practically implement those ideas through a call to action. So as a persuasive speaker, you always are in the process of changing or reinforcing an attitudes beliefs or values and ultimately behavior because if if your ideas are just considered intellectual and they are just cognitively processed but the hearers or listeners never actually implement those ideas then you really can't say that you have achieved uh you have achieved the goal of persuading them because ultimately if they're persuaded, they will take some action. That is key. I have tried over the 25 years or so of teaching to convince students or to persuade students to read the textbook. And with all of the... uh, Knowledge that I have about public speaking and persuasion and influence, I still am slightly successful in that endeavor. And that we'll talk more about that in regards to motivating your audience to listen. So, you've heard me use the analogy of the audience uh, members will pay attention and the speaker will then reward them with a product that cost more or is more valuable than whatever the payment is that they give to the speaker. So I continue to enjoy this uh, analogy um, in comparing the, uh, just like a transaction, any type of transaction, a uh, financial consumer transaction, you uh, want something that you see on Amazon And then you say, fine, that's what I want, that's what I need. And you press the button, and then a few days later, the product shows up. And in some cases, you get the product and it fails to meet your expectations. It doesn't do what it's supposed to do, that it was advertised to do, or you think to yourself that you paid too much for it. So the value, based upon you are actually using the product... You think to yourself, it's overpriced. I paid too much. So in this transaction, Amazon or the vendor won in a sense, and I lost because I paid too much for the product. So much like a financial transaction, as a public speaker, your audience will pay, and they'll pay using attention, and that just means they'll sit quietly, they'll listen, and they will hopefully cognitively process that information mentally and they will respond non-verbally as you are presenting and at the end they will probably clap and that will be an acknowledgement of two things that the speech is over and hopefully they liked it appreciated it and they enjoyed it and it was useful to them. There was something that they got out of it. So when you speak, you give the audience something of value. And you, uh, your goal would be that it is greater than the value that they pay you. And I use, it, uh, use the payment as attention. So they pay attention and you provide them important, useful information that will make their lives better. Uh, in some cases, it will make it slightly better. And in some cases, it will amaze them, and they may be totally different. So, you're trying to—it's uh, a process of changing and reinforcing an attitude or belief or value, and then ultimately behavior. So, um, attitudes represents likes, likes or dislikes, and it says stated more technically, an attitude is a learned predisposition to respond favorably or unfavorably towards something. So that is the kind of more technical um, definition. Changing or reinforcing an audience belief. A belief is something you understand to be true or false. If you believe something, you are convinced that it exists or it's true. You've structured your sense of what is real and what is unreal to account for the existence of whatever you believe. And then lastly, uh, value. A value is an enduring concept of right or wrong, good or bad. If you value something, you you classify it as good or desirable, and you tend to think of its opposite or its absence as bad or wrong. Kind of makes sense. Most Americans value honesty, trustworthiness, freedom, loyalty, marriage, family, and money. And understanding your listeners uh, what they value can help you refine your analysis of them and then help you to um, transform that message to meet their particular needs. Changing or reinforcing uh, audience behaviors. Persu- persuasive messages are often uh, often attempt to do more than just change or reinforce a belief or value. They may attempt to change or strengthen a behavior. Getting listeners to eat more fruits or vegetables and to exercise more are typical goals of persuas- persuasive messages that we hear. Those are, those are, those are messages that we hear, <laughs> but just as an aside, uh, please don't uh, give us speeches uh, like that, because typically those are kind of speeches that uh, when peers-to-peers try to uh, influence people, in this case other students, to, quote, eat better or to be more healthy, They are rarely rarely effective. Um, Peer-to-peer attempts to modify uh, eating and or exercise rarely are successful. And there's several reasons, but one... There's just something about our uh, sense of what we eat is good, whatever we eat that is good or not good, we get it. And whether um, our weight is good or bad, whatever that means, we probably understand that. So uh, please don't give us any of those kind of speeches about exercising more, eating better. They usually fall flat. Okay. Moving on to page 302 How Persuasion Works. How Persuasion Works. Um, And there's a couple of different uh, perspectives. Uh, I'm going to focus on Aristotle's traditional approach using ethos, logos, and pathos to persuade. And of course, some of you know who Aristotle is. The book says a Greek philosopher and rhetorician who lived and wrote in the 4th century BC. Uh, And it says, is a source of many ideas about communication in general and persuasion in particular. Uh, That is true. I do recommend if you have any time to spend more time getting to know uh, Aristotle and um, basically any of the Greeks around that period would be very useful. I know if you take a philosophy class, you will get to know Aristotle and many other of the famous Greeks. Uh, Ethos, it says here that um, from uh, Aristotle's traditional approach to persuasion, Uh, is, um, according to his definition, an attempt to persuade is really discovering all of the particular means that are available to persuade. So, uh, when your goal is to persuade, the communicator communicator selects symbols, words, and nonverbal messages, including images, uh, in an attempt to change attitudes, beliefs, values, or behavior. And uh, Aristotle identified the three general methods or using his language available means to persuade ethos, logos, and pathos. So, uh, ethos is normally defined as, uh, you can see the base word for ethics. Uh, Logos um, is normally defined as the logic. And then pathos is normally uh, defined as the appeal, emotional appeal of the argument. So, those are kind of, because they're Greek ideas, those are our general understanding of those three words. So, Is the speaker ethical? So, from the interpretation of the audience, not necessarily a moral ethical um, examination of the character of the speaker, Um, the the idea of ethos used to persuade means does the audience believe that the speaker has the best interest of the audience in mind as they present their ideas? So, is it uh, an idea... That not only benefits the speaker, and maybe more, more, pre- more, more likely uh, benefits the hearers, maybe in a sense, even more than the speaker. So there's a sense that uh, a, an ethical speaker is not a self-centered speaker, and an ethical speaker is concerned um, either equally or more about the audience and how it will impact them, maybe even then to the speaker. So that's kind of the general idea of ethos. Uh, ethos does not mean that the speaker is highly ethical or highly moral, because it's true a uh, a bank robber can give a good speech on how to prevent robberies. It may not mean that the uh, speaker is of high moral character, but uh, more likely it's the def it's the interpretation of the audience that the speaker uh, the speaker's message is ethical. Uh, next is logos. Uh, and it says here that logos liter- literally means the word. So if any of you study Greek or Latin, and you could look these words up, you may get multiple definitions. And so when I say it's kind of how we typically interpret these words um, and how we use them, it may not line up exactly with the definition. So logos is means the word. But the way that we've defined it for years is it's the logic of the, um, the rationale or logical arguments that speakers use to persuade. So it says a speaker persuades not only they reach a logic not a skilled persuader not only reaches a logical c- conclusion, but also supports the message with evidence and reasoning, evidence and reasoning. And we'll talk about that um, in a little bit more detail in a bit. And then uh, lastly, pathos is normally thought to be the emotional appeal. So when uh, an emotions are stirred in an attempt to help persuade, that would be the uh, pathos. And then last le- lastly, they talk about motivation. Motivation is the underlying internal force that drives people to achieve their goals. Uh, our motives explain why we do things, and it says several factors uh, motivate people to respond the need to restore balance to their lives, avoid stress, avoid pain, uh, desire to increase pleasure. Pain and pleasure are two huge, big motivators for sure. So if you frame the motivation in pain or pleasure, uh, the, this speech will give you pleasure and this speech will help you avoid pain. That would be a general um, idea or an overview, but of course you're going to give them something particular that will help them with those two needs. I'm going to move on to page 305, how to motivate listeners. Describe four ways to motivate listeners to respond to a persuasive message. There's an interesting table on page 306. I recommend highly. Table 16.1, how to motivate listeners to respond to your persuasive message. And they give you uh, four general uh, ways, ideas. Use cognitive dissonance. Use listeners' needs. Use positive motivation. Use negative motivation. Cognitive dissonance um, is a theory based on the principle that people strive to solve problems and manage stress and tension in a way that was cons- that's consistent with their attitudes, beliefs, or values. So the idea is that people do not like to have uh, a discomfort, a mental uh, uh Discomfort, which means they have competing thoughts in their mind, and that competition creates discomfort known as dissonance. And the word cognitive has to do with our mental or thought processes. So, the idea of cognitive dissonance really is um, dis, uh, <clears throat> a lack of harmony or agreement in our minds, something like that. Okay. So uh, oftentimes, when we use it in the context of public speaking, our audience members may already have this disharmony in their mental processes, and we provide an antidote to that disharmony, and at the end, their thinking and their process, mental cognitive processes are now at ease. There's no more discomfort. Or... They don't have it, and when we speak the things that we say, it brings up tension, and it creates tension in their cognitive and mental processes. And now they have distress, but before you end the speech, you will provide the antidote to um, that, um, and you will give them the, the antidote, the antidote, sorry, not an anecdote. antidote, which is the uh, elixir or the medicine to help their cognitive dissonance. So there's many different ways it works. Uh, One, if you want them to experience it, you tell them uh, something that will now create it. So for instance, had a student, uh, more than one student that's done this, but this was done effectively. They started out their speech and they said, I want everyone to take look down now at your sneakers. And if your sneakers were, are made by Nike, then your sneakers were made by uh, people in um, developing countries where they get paid about a dollar a day and their work conditions are awful. And oftentimes these are young people as young as eight or nine years old and they basically use um, enslaved labor to produce these sneakers. So now, all of you that are wearing these Nike shoes, you should really feel bad about yourself. You should feel uh, disgusted that you would purchase products that would ultimately enslave young, uh, poor people in developing nations. And um, if it wasn't for you, bad person, buying these inexpensive products, then these individuals would not be enslaved. They'd be living a better life and they would not be stuck in these awful work conditions. So you are bad. So then you feel bad because you're a good person and then you say to yourself, I feel bad now, but the public speaker says, but I have the solution to your bad feeling and here's the solution. Kick off those shoes, throw them in a trash can, and I want you to go out and buy some other brand. And whichever brand you want, you could say New Balance. So the solution is don't buy Nike, buy New Balance because New Balance is made in uh, probably not in the United States but other countries. But in those countries, they have strict laws and rules guiding uh, what employers can and cannot do, and they have certain wage requirements and they have excellent working conditions and they don't employ young people and they don't enslave them. So that is a better place to buy. That's a better place for those uh, sneakers to be manufactured. And then when they sell them here in, in the United States, you should buy them. Now you are a good person again. So I started off the speech as a listener. I didn't know I was bad. The speaker told me why I was bad. I felt bad. And then the speaker told me how I could be good again, and I listened, and now that I know that, I will be good again. So that is one way to use cognitive dissonance uh, as an effective process for uh, persuading uh, an individual. So in this case, you didn't know you were bad until I told you, but then I gave you the, the solution uh, or the antidote to that problem. So that's one way. So another way is they, uh, let's just say, they already know they're bad and you could do it the other way around. And you could also bring up an idea knowing that they know that they're bad um, and use cognitive dissonance uh, just in the inverse to do it that way. Uh, This cognitive dissonance is also used in sales. So I'll give you an example in sales. You make a purchase of something that has a significant uh, dollar value. So not something inexpensive. And and for most people, even that's relative. It's like if I spent $500 and I bought a product and that product just was awful, um, I would feel really bad, especially if I couldn't return it, right? But if I spent $10, $20, $30 on a product and it turns out it was awful, it was bad, it it was just a bad product, it didn't do what it was supposed to do, I may just pitch it in the garbage and just say, you know, whatever. That was a bad decision. So if you think about um, something that you bought that had a significant value, and after buying it, you thought to yourself, I probably shouldn't have bought that. And maybe you spent uh, money that you really shouldn't have spent or money that you didn't have. Say you used a credit card with high interest, or maybe you got a loan for it. And this is classic in sales. They use this in um, car sales. So you're convinced you need a car, used car, new car, you go buy it. And then after you buy it, you think to yourself, oh, I shouldn't have have done that. I just shouldn't have done that. So you're not sure if you should have made the purchase. And you're feeling kind of bad, maybe you spent too much money. So now you have what's known as cognitive dissonance. You have some mental disharmony. And so you call up a friend and you tell them, and then your friend's like, oh, no, you're good. Even though it was expensive, even though maybe it was a little bit too much, you're good. It was worth it. It was a good purchase. You needed it. You had to have it. And then you feel good. Now your cognitive dissonance has um, gone away. And you call up another friend. You say, hey, I just bought this new thing. It's awesome, whatever. And your friend's like, dude, why'd you do that? You can't afford that that you know what you need to take that back or look that that's actually the the wrong one you should have got the other one because that other one is the really good one the one you bought is just okay didn't you check it out didn't you do a little research on it because that was a really bad decision then you hang up the phone and now you got your cognitive dissonances back and now you're like oh my gosh I made a bad decision I don't know what to do so then you call a third friend and you call a third friend up and your third friend says no that other person was dumb it was a good decision, it was a good investment. Yeah, maybe it was too expensive, but you're still good. It was you needed it, and now you feel better. That's how cognitive dissonant works. So in sales, when you go to buy something, especially something expensive, oftentimes a salesperson will tell you, maybe indirectly, you know, you can't bring this back. You've made a good choice, but you can't bring it back. And then sometimes they don't say it like that. They just tell you, you made a really good choice. Sometimes they'll call you up afterwards, especially if it's a big a big item or expensive item and they'll tell you how awesome it was that you purchased it. Uh, It's fantastic and you made a good decision and you're an awesome person. That's how they avoid um, that whole thing of the cognitive dissonance coming back and then you thinking that you're going to bring the item back because in sales, uh, the best part of sales is closing the sale and the worst part of sales is when someone tries to bring it back and that's just true. Okay, so... Four ways to motivate your listeners. Cognitive dissonance, listeners' needs, positive motivation, negative motivation. So next is listeners' needs. It says people are motivated by unmet needs. The most basic needs are uh, physiological, safety, social, self-esteem, self-actualization. If you remember Maslow's hierarchy from sociology class, that's classic classic, um, Maslow. So um, that's one thing you should, that's another thing you should, you should use, the needs of the listeners. Uh, thirdly, positive motivation. People will be more likely to change their thinking or pursue a particular course of action if they're convinced that good things will happen to them if they support what the speaker advocates. Okay, so positive motivation, right? Like maybe when you were young, your parents had a chart, and if you did something good, they put a star on it, and if you did something bad, they took the star off, or if you did something bad, they took two stars off. Some uh, schools in the elementary schools they had a, a card system of red, yellow, and green, and then have you pull a card if you did something good and if you if you did something bad you'd have to pull the card and put a yellow card or a red card. It was another way um, for motivation, so positive and negative. And that last one says people avoid pain and discomfort, and they'll be motivated um, uh, to find they'll be motivated to find ways to avoid. Uh, um, Pain, in a sense, right? Uh, It's not necessarily physical pain, but mainly emotional, psychological pain. So you know if you do something good, someone says, well done. And if you do something bad, someone says, what's wrong with you? Um, And again, these are motivations. Because even if someone was to say, uh, you suck, uh, a lot of times that just says, okay, I'm going to prove to you I don't. And that could be turned around and used as a strong motivator. I mean, often people who overcome some very difficult things in life... They overcome them, and part of their motivation is is to prove those people uh, wrong. So even some type of negative motivation can uh, lead to positive changes. So those are the four ways. Okay, so we're going to move on now to uh, page, um, let me see, so 308, 309. Oh, we already talked about Maslow. Uh, The actual Maslow's hierarchy chart is on page 310. So you can look at that for more detail. Um, positive motivations on page 311. And let's talk more about negative motivation because they use a couple of good examples here, or one particular one is called a fear appeal. Fear appeal. So in, under the negative motivation category, a fear appeal. So a fear appeal um, is uh, the use of a threat uh, to get behavior to change, right? So, uh, as a child, maybe you said to your brother or sister, if you don't stop that, I'm going to tell mom. Whether he or she realizes it, the sibling who threatens to tell mom was using a persuasive technique called a fear appeal. So, um, yeah, in the essence, the fear appeal takes the form of if then, if then statement. If you don't do X, then awful things will happen to you. So, a fear fear appeal directed on audience members themselves is less effective than one against a loved one. A speaker using this principle may say, unless you make sure your children wear seatbelts, they could easily be injured or killed in an auto accident. And, of course, we don't want that. Uh, The more competent and trustworthy or respected the speaker, the greater likelihood that an appeal to fear will be successful. If the U.S. Surgeon General was to tell you something, then that may create greater motivation than if someone that you thought was less credible told you. Uh, The next one, a fear appeal is more successful if you convince your listeners that the threat is real. So is the threat real? And sometimes that's really hard to quantify, but if the audience believes, you've probably seen a fear appeal, a public service announcement, a PSA. Um, They have these all the time and they use fear appeals uh, quite regularly. Uh, This is your brain and this is your brain on drugs. There's a frying pan and they say, that's your brain. And they crack an egg under the frying pan and the egg fries and they say, that's your brain. When you use drugs, that's kind of what happens to your brain. And then you think, I don't want my brain to fry like an egg on a frying pan, so I won't use that drug. Of course, that doesn't work, but that is the general thought of the fear appeal in regards to a public service announcement and the use of drugs. And next one, it says, in general, increasing the intensity of the fear appeal increases, the fear appeal will be effective. It says, this is especially true if a listener can take an action to reduce the threat. So, um... Take an action that reduces the threat. In the past, some researchers in public speaking texts reported that when a speaker created an excessive amount of fear, anxiety in listeners, they may consider the appeal too strong and the listeners may become annoyed and stop speaking. Um, I'm not so sure that that's true. and I think even the author would probably say that. Fear appeals do work, though. Strong fear, fear appeals seem to work even better than mild ones, assuming that there's evidence to back it up. So uh, fear appeal would be if you don't read the book you're not going to get a good jo- uh, you're not going to get a good grade on the test. Then you take the test after not reading the book and you get a pretty decent grade, and then that fear appeal doesn't work and oftentimes that's how oftentimes students get their uh, lack of um, effort uh, reinforced because they end up doing well or getting a good grade or getting a grade that they wanted, and they have uh, produced very little effort to get it. So then they assume that then effort is not related to good grades. And so, as an aside, uh, effort is uh, about the only thing that is related to good things, whether it's good grades or good work or whatever. Effort is very important. Effort's a very important component. Okay. So, let me see. Moving on. How to develop an audience-centered persuasive speech. And, of course... This, uh, the textbook has that pinwheel that has those um, seven uh, components in it, and in the center it says, consider the audience, consider the audience, right? And so remember your ethical responsibilities as a persuader. As you think about your audience and how to adapt your message, we remind you of the ethical responsibility when persuading others, fabricating evidence, or trying to frighten your listeners with bogus information is unethical creating distance in the mind of your listeners based on information you know to be untrue is also unethical. You also have an ethical obligation to tell your readers the sources of your information. You must tell them, and I've mentioned this many times, uh, if you quote something and you say this is where you got it, your listeners should be able to easily go to that place um, and find that same exact information. Uh, and then in regards to these, uh, these other components of selecting and narrowing uh, we've talked about that because by time you hear this and you listen to this, we're already at the point where we've completed the first two speeches. So we're at that place where you have already formulated an informative speech um, using my requirements, which is the speech has to be socially relevant, it has to be important, and it has to be talked about in the news uh, within the last uh, couple of days, weeks, those kind of things. That's just part of their re- minimum minimum requirements. Okay. Now, uh, when we talk about uh, persuasion and think about persuasion on a line, and one end is the person uh, they reject your idea, and on the other far end they accept your idea or your premise or your thesis, and of course, there's ranges uh, of of between those two points, so far left they totally reject your idea, and on the right they totally accept it. And then, of course, um, in the center, we'll just say it's kind of non-committal. And along that line, there will be different places uh, that your audience may mentally, cognitively, stop along the uh, along that line as you speak. So. You may start off the speech and you may say, global warming is real. And then their mind, they're like, right away, no, it's not. So they go to latitude of rejection and say, I'm already there. And then maybe as you speak, they may move a bit off of that far end and maybe move a little closer to the center. But maybe by the time you get done, they don't move much. And it could be inverse as well. Uh, So you could say, um, I'm here to tell you that there is no such thing as global warming, and you'll get agreement. And then, again, there will be some people that would uh, jump to the rejection side. So if you think about a line, and you think about where people are when they start listening before you really speak, and then does, do they change, uh, are they more likely to accept your premise, or are they less likely to, or... Does your speech have very limited or no effect on where they are on that line? So the book talks about three positions. Latitude of rejection. Listeners disagree with the speaker. Latitude of non-commitment. Listeners are uncommitted or unsure how to respond. And then latitude of acceptance. Listeners agree with the speaker. And, of course, there uh, every person uh, that listens will be somewhere on that line depending upon the topic that you're presenting. And so, partly, you, if you want to um, convince and persuade, ultimately, someone to change their behavior, um, you, it's going to be rare that you'll convert uh, a a audience member in a classroom setting from all the way to one side of latitude of rejection to all the way to the other side, latitude of acceptance. Or if you want to change, if you want to move them from latitude of acceptance, and your goal is to push them towards latitude of rejection. You could see along that line, there's a lot of work to be done. And it's rare that in a six or seven minute speech that that can be truly accomplished. However, there may be some times where the listeners are getting closer or moving in that direction, the direction that you are moving and persuading them. And they started out moving in that direction. And the information that you provided actually gave them a little push. And now they're really moving towards your position and maybe by the end of the speech they're darn close, and then maybe in the next couple weeks or months or years, something else convinces them and they have have made that complete uh, conversion. It works both ways. Sometimes the more you know, the more that you uh, reject the idea. Sometimes the less you know, the more you accept the idea. If you think about social media, that may be a good analogy. Oftentimes, the most popular position that people agree to uh, is the, uh, that position is totally untrue or false or unreliable. But because it's popular and because of confirmation bias, we will just uncritically accept it uh, and we will just act if, if it's true or real, even though we're not sure. Because oftentimes being popular is more important than being right, or more, or or having an a popular opinion. Uh, there's greater um, value or greater pleasure in that, even if uh, the idea is not reliable or true, um, and that just happens when audiences are extremely uncritical of ideas. So if the people that are important to you, let's call them peers or friends, believe something, uh, and someone tells you about that, if you want to be popular or you want want them to like you, you may just agree with them but have no idea if uh, if agreeing means you're agreeing to something that is true, unreliable, false. You just don't know, but the relationship is more important than if the idea is uh, valuable, reliable, or true. And that's one of the downsides of getting information from Facebook or Twitter or any other social media, because they tend to believe things that are popular. And uh, if the idea could be completely unreliable, not true, not valid, but because social media pushes people into popular uh, believing popular ideas, then anything that's an outlier will be mocked or just um, ignored, maybe, or uncritically um, thought about, and maybe even commented on. So you have to be careful with that. That's just a general um, warning for public speakers. Okay, that uh, kind of wraps up uh, chapter sixteen. I would definitely read. Cha- uh, I would definitely not only read the chapter, but take a look at. Uh, pages 323 and 324, because that is the study and review guide. There's terms there that you should remember and know, and there's a couple of good essay questions uh, that I may or may not ask you uh, for a quiz, okay? So that is uh, the overview of Chapter 16. Uh, Thank you for listening. Hopefully it was valuable.